Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's episode of Conversations from the World of Allergy comes from our Ask the Researcher series. Uh, Also, quite frankly, it's from our Hot Topics series as well, as you'll find out soon enough, where we interview leading researchers regarding their work and careers. We are very fortunate to have today's guest join us as our first international guest. Dr. Brian Lipworth is a clinical professor of molecular and clinical medicine at the Scottish Center for Respiratory Research at Nine Wells Hospital and Medical School at the University of Dundee in Scotland. Dr. Lipworth has established an international reputation investigating various aspects of clinical airway research and has over 500 peer-reviewed publications. Recently, Dr. Lipworth has published in both the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology and Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice on the topic of COVID-19, which is what we're going to discuss today. And I think this is going to be a fascinating conversation for all of our listeners, and I'm very much looking forward to learning more. Dr. Lipworth, thank you so much for taking time to join us today, and welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much, Dave. Uh, it's, uh, it's a real privilege uh, and an honor uh, for me to do this, and I hope we can have a, an informative chat over the next half hour or so. So thank you very much to the Academy for inviting me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Well, you know, before we get into the, some of the details regarding COVID-19, we're recording this episode in late July 2020. And, you know, we all know that daily COVID-19 cases have reached an all-time high in the United States. How are things where you are in Scotland and in the United Kingdom currently? So if we look at the UK-wide, which which includes, uh, which includes Scotland, we're talking about uh, 295 thousand cases that's PCR swab positive and um, about 45,000 uh, deaths um, which are re- attributed to COVID on the death certificate so that's population just to give you an idea in the UK about 68 million in Scotland which has got a population of five and a half million um, we're talking about uh, 18 and a half thousand cases and of those PCR positive and of those, about uh, two and a half thousand deaths. Just to bring you up to date, I just had a little sneaky peek <laughs> on the website before I came on. And um, today, or yesterday in Scotland, there were 22 cases and no deaths. <laughs> and in the UK, there were 580 cases and 12 deaths. Um, And have you observed any key differences in regards to public health measures employed in Scotland compared with other parts of the United Kingdom or or really any other countries? Um, Not really. We don't really have a – the main thing really here compared to, say, the Far East um, is our track and trace system um, is very, very rudimentary. There was meant to be an app that they brought in and they found that it just just wasn't fit for purpose. So – 
Um, I think they're getting into bed, the government are getting into bed with Google and Apple to develop a better uh, app for track and trace. So they've managed to ramp up the testing uh, to more than 100,000 a day uh, after a bit of a slow start. But there's no real difference between Scotland and the rest of the UK. The only main difference is, is the Scottish government has held us in lockdown for quite a bit longer than down in the rest of the UK in England, Wales and uh, and Northern Ireland. Uh, so, for example, you know, I'm still not seeing my my patients face to face. We're only seeing um, emergencies face to face in clinic, you know, so cancer patients, that kind of thing. But for asthma patients and my patients with allergic rhinosinusitis, which are my two main interests, we're still having to do everything virtually. We're still not up and running with doing lung function tests yet because of aerosol generating concerns. So uh, yeah, we're still we're still quite a bit far behind here, to be honest with you. Mm, interesting. So the pictures that I saw from the last couple of weeks with the pubs opening up, say in London and other other areas, that doesn't apply to where you are. They just they just opened up here last week, so I'm sure we're going to see some regional spikes. Will we get a second wave? I don't know. I think what we'll do is we'll probably see uh, clusters in certain cities. So we've seen some clusters in places like Bradford and Leicester down in England, um, in the Midlands and the north of England. And I guess we'll probably see the same in Scotland. We'll see some small regional clusters and spikes. Um, uh, but I, I don't think, and obviously I hope that we won't see a, a full-blown second wave in, in Scotland if people behave themselves. Mm, no, I hope so as well. And I hope that you stay safe and I hope everything goes well with, with sort of resuming some aspect of normalcy. Appreciate that. Now, now, prior prior to this COVID nineteen pandemic, your extensive research career is focused on various aspects related to the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and even public health measures related to airway disease. And you know, to me, it seems like you were perfectly primed and ready to offer new insight uh, once this terrible pandemic came into our lives. Uh, can you offer some insight as to what piqued your interest in learning more about this pandemic? Well, it's really expediency more than anything else because my um, airway research, my upper and my lower airway research, was knocked on the head. Um, so we had to furlough. Uh, we had to furlough all of my staff, my research staff, uh, my clinical fellows. They went back onto the COVID front line. Um, so really, you know, I thought, well, um, it's really something that I, I have to do. Um, I run a regular blog actually on LinkedIn and I started reading more and more about COVID and I thought, well, you know what, I think there's a, probably something that I can, I can offer here, particularly to my allergy and pulmonology colleagues. Uh, and that's really how, how I got into it. And then, you know, the more I read, the more I was interested, started writing a few editorials, as you mentioned before, and now I'm setting up some, uh, some research um, which we can maybe discuss later. Mm, absolutely. That's fantastic. So, and before we get into some of the, the details, would you mind sharing just in general with your career, what aspects of clinical and translational research do you really enjoy the most? Well, my research is mainly focused um, on airway allergy. So although I'm a certified pulmonologist, um, I'm, uh, I'm mostly interested in airway allergy. So upper airway allergy, in terms of allergic rhinosinusitis, nasal polyposis, I run a um, I run a, a rhinology service in, in, in concert with my um, 
otorhinology uh, colleagues, uh, my surgical colleagues here. We have a one-shot-stop-shop clinic, which I've been running for about 20 years now. And then lower airway, obviously, asthma and some, uh, and some COPD as well. But what I enjoy the most, to answer your question, um, I enjoy um, designing the clinical trials, finding questions um, which I want to answer for my own clinical practice. That's all, always what's driven me. So if there's something which has been bugging me, which I think um, is an unmet need in clinical practice, um, and it's relevant to patient care, I'm not a bench not a bench researcher, I'm more of a more of a, uh, a patient focused researcher, more translational research, then that's what I'll do. So I enjoy reading the literature, finding where there's um, an unmet need, designing the clinical trial, and then I enjoy, you know, there's nothing more exciting than sitting down with your fellow research fellow and looking at the data as it starts coming through, and then weaving the picture uh, to try and write the paper to get it published in a decent journal like like JCI. So it sounds like the uh, you know that that's fantastic, and I know that we all appreciate the work that you do. Um, but it, it's a little bit different than people you know doing their quote unquote research by going onto Facebook and finding their echo chambers. Would you say? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, the other thing which I enjoy, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I actually like uh, seeing the clinical fellows move on. Um, you know, I'm really proud that four of my old clinical fellows have now got their own chairs. Um, so it's really nice to see them doing very well um, moving forward. So I really do enjoy mentoring the clinical fellows. And I think I've mentored now about, what, 25 clinical fellows over the years, um, some better than others, having said that. But, it's you know, <laughs> I still do like training the fellows and bouncing off them. There's nothing like having a bit of youth in the department. And my mantra is surround yourself by people who are much cleverer than you. <laughs> Wise words. And your enthusiasm comes through very well. So that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Well, let, let's get into the meat of the conversation. Um, so let's just sort of establish a baseline here for our listeners. So everybody's on the same page. Let, let's go to uh, basics. Can you describe what type of virus SARS-CoV-2 is, how it spreads, and what it does inside the human body? Yeah, so SARS-CoV-2. Um, is uh, one of the family of coronaviruses. Um, and these are basically um, single-strand RNA in an envelope um, with glycoprotein spikes um, attached to them. And the family includes the common cold coronavirus, um, which is seasonal. Um, and then uh, the other coronaviruses are, are MERS-CoV, uh, Middle East uh, Respiratory Syndrome, um, uh, SARS, uh, SARS-CoV, which is the uh, SARS, uh, SARS outbreak, and then more recently, um, the COVID, which is SARS-CoV-2. Now, these are all zoonotic viruses. In other words, they're transmitted from uh, animal reservoirs. Uh, MERS came from camels in the Middle East, apparently. SARS came from bats. And the current thinking is that uh, COVID, SARS-CoV-2, also comes from bats and perhaps other animals are intermediary uh, in transmission in terms of the zoonotic reservoir. So I think there's some thinking, it's not proven yet, that pangolins are also involved as an intermediary species in the transmission of, of COVID. Um, how does it spread? Well, it spreads by droplets. Um, 
and obviously contact um, either from the human body with your mouth, nose or eyes. The first port of call to get inside the body is actually the nose. Um, um, when you think about it, you know, 30 to 40 percent of COVID patients who are affected by the virus get anosmia or hyposmia. Uh, actually, some really, really nice research. There was some re reverse genetics data published in Cell, which was really neat, which showed that uh, the expression of the uh, receptor onto which SARS-CoV-2 hitches arrived, which we'll come to later, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, angiotensin 2, uh, the expression of that is actually much higher in the nose uh, with a descending gradient as you go from the nose down the uh, down the respiratory tree. And if you actually look at the infectivity with SARS-CoV-2, it's much higher initially in the nose than it is in the lower airway. So um, consequently, if you want to protect yourself, wear a mask and make sure that your mask fits over your nose because that's the first port of call for the virus. So once it gets into the nose, um, of course, you know, you get rapid nasociliary clearance um, into the pharynx and from there it aspirates into the lung um, and then you can either get the local lung manifestations, the COVID pneumonia, pneumonitis, or the systemic response, which uh, we'll maybe discuss later. Mm, that's fascinating. Um, now, in regards to risk factors, what, what's really emerged as some common patterns in regards to those who experience severe infection from this virus? And are these the same across the world or does it, does it change based upon location? So the main risk factors are uh, men more than women. Hmm. Uh, there's ethnic race, uh, ethnic factors as well. So uh, black people, Asian people uh, seem to be uh, seem to be more susceptible. Um, if you're obese, that's a risk factor. It's probably not obesity per se. That's probably metabolic syndrome. So you know, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, all linked together. So as I've said hypertension, uh, diabetes, big risk factors. And then you've got chronic heart disease, chronic lung disease, asthma, um, COPD, um, chronic kidney disease, um, and finally, um, neoplasia or patients who are uh, immunosuppressed um, for one reason or another. So those are the main risk factors. And the more risk factors, you, and obviously if you're over, if you're over 70, um, is a big risk factor because you've got these age-related comorbidities. Although it has been shown in that regard that expression of ACE2, the uh, receptor pro, the receptor um, which SARS-CoV-2 um, hitches a ride into the into the respiratory epithelium, the expression of ACE2 is actually age-related, and that's been shown in the nose actually. So the older you are, the more ACE2 expression you've got. Males, why are they more susceptible? Well, that's thought that testosterone, a steroid hormone, um, upregulates the ACE2 receptor. Um, is this the same across the world? Um, pretty much so, with a few, a few regional tweaks here and there. Does location matter? No. SARS-CoV-2 no has no respect of where you live or what you do. Oh, that's all right. That thank you for that background. And I want to get back to the ACE2 receptor in a second. But before we do, um, 
Can you describe what we've learned as far as the end organ effects that occur in people who have severe infection and or death? Uh, you mentioned before about how, how it sees through the nose and uh, a lot of people you know, will have uh, upper and lower respiratory symptoms, but what else have we learned? Well, the first, as I said, the first is it goes to the nose, then to the lung, um, and then in susceptible individuals, which I've just outlined, those with comorbidities or, or elderly people, then it causes the COVID pneumonia. Um, if um, you get severe pneumonia, then uh, you will become you'll become hypoxic, and you'll have a need for oxygen, and, and then you'll need to be um, admitted to a hospital. Once the virus then goes systemically, because you know the, the lungs are a brilliant way of getting uh, getting anything into the systemic circulation. You know, it's said the lungs are you unravel the lungs with a sort of the size of a tennis court. So once it gets systemically, then you get an adaptive um, immune response, and that, um, through various pro-inflammatory cytokines, involves uh, multiple organs, so um, extrapulmonary manifestations. Uh, in the brain, you can get confusion, encephalitis, um, seizures, strokes, um, in, uh, in the heart, that can give you myocarditis, cardiac arrhythmias, hepatitis in the liver, um, and nephritis with acute kidney injury and renal failure. Gastroenteritis is, is quite common. You can get lesions on the skin, which look like sort of lupus pernio. And of course, the really, really big killer in COVID, aside from hypoxic pneumonia, is the endarteritis and thrombophilia, which this virus seems to induce, which results in disseminated venous uh, thromboembolism. So as well as getting the COVID pneumonia, you get the double whammy that you um, often get and venous thromboemboli and pulmonary emboli, which worsens, worsens the um, hypoxia due to worsening of the uh, ventilation perfusion mismatch. And that's why all patients admitted to hospital, the first thing that happens is you get you get a jab with um, low molecular weight uh, heparin to try and prevent that. Mm, interesting. Um, you know, I realize as we as we go along in this conversation, um, I don't necessarily like what I'm hearing, uh, but nonetheless, we can't ignore it. And <laughs> this is very important information for all of us to understand. I so. mean, the way that I actually think about COVID-19 is that I actually think of COVID-19 as manifesting as a viral-induced cytokine-mediated autoimmune disease, which is characterized by hyperinflammation and coagulopathy. That's how I would kind of summarize what we're talking about here. Uh, that's, that's really fascinating. And actually, I was just about to ask you about that. So can you describe to us what do we know about the types of immunologic mechanisms that have been identified in these severe COVID patients? And then we'll talk about cytokine storm after that. Or if you want to roll it into one, that's fine as well. Well, you, you know, you're getting an adaptive immune response here with, uh, with macrophages, um, T cells, um, and uh, B cells. Um, and then uh, as a consequence of that, in certain susceptible individuals, which seems to be these you know, older patients with comorbidities, that's when you get release of these pro-inflammatory cytokines. So the main players here are interleukin-1, in particular interleukin-1-beta, interleukin-6, and TNF-alpha. Those are, there's various other cytokines and chemokines, 
But those are the ones that when you actually measure it in patients with severe COVID, so these are hypoxic patients or patients who've been intubated and being mechanically ventilated, the really sick ones, they're the ones that have the highest levels of cytokines. And that's what we mean by the cytokine cascade or the, or the cytokine storm. These are the patients who've got this adaptive immune hyperinflammatory response. They're susceptible individuals. And that's what's causing the, uh, the end organ damage. And it's also causing the hyaline membrane deposition in the alveoli, which is giving you the, um, uh, the um, uh, acute uh, respiratory dis uh, distress uh, syndrome, AR ARDS. And once you've got that, you know, you're unlikely to come out of the ITU, to be honest with you. Mm. Do we have any idea why some people have that switch flipped and others do not? And more importantly, can we stop that switch from being flipped in the first place? Unfortunately, at the moment, we don't. We know which patients are. Uh, we know which patients are more susceptible to that. That's been shown in in uh, in some of the big databases. The one that springs to mind is the uh, is the UK Open Safely database, um, which is in uh, seventeen million UK patients. Um, and that database again showed that the patients who end up being admitted to hospital and who end up being on ITU and die. Are those very patients, um, you know, with the common comorbidities, which I've just outlined, um, and, the, and the ethnic susceptibility as well. Um, but in terms of, you know, can we get, a, say, an immunological endotype? That's what you're asking to say who's going to end up in ITU and who isn't. Um, at the moment, we don't know that. What I can tell you is because it's some data that, I published um, with a group in Munich that we published in Jackie. The first author was actually Tobias Herald from Munich. And what we showed in that paper in Jackie that we published was that, in fact, if you are admitted to hospital, the strongest single predictor of whether you're going to end up on a mechanical ventilator and need to be intubated is actually your levels of interleukin-6. It has a very high predictive value um, um, in terms of whether you're going to end up being on a ventilator. And from memory, I should know because I was an author on the paper, I think <laughs> if your IL-6 level is greater than, I think it was 65 uh, picograms per mil, that's associated with a 22-fold increased risk of needing mechanical ventilation. Now, you might say, well, you know, do we usually measure interleukin-6 in patients admitted? No, we don't. And what we use is a surrogate because, as you may know, interleukin-6 um, stimulates hepatic synthesis of C-reactive protein. So C-reactive protein and IL-6 track very closely to each other. So the second strongest predictor, unsurprisingly, of need for ventilation was um, CRP levels. So if your CRP level, which most people are more familiar with than IL-6, if your CRP level on admission um, to hospital is more than 35 milligrams per litre, or during the course of admission, if it goes up above um, 95 milligrams per litre, that has a very high predictive value that you're likely to ventilate it. So the message there is, is if you're dealing with sick patients, if your CRP is 
raised on admission, or if the trend is for the CRP to be creeping up, that should be um, a very clear indicator to the clinician to start thinking about escalating treatment. Mm. Yeah, uh, in in regards to so th- really, we're talking about biomarkers that can be useful to help you know predict severity. Um, have other biomarkers been investigated? And you know, do you recommend anything else at this time? Well, there are other biomarkers. You know, there's there's things like um, uh, lactate dehydrogenase (LDH). There's D-dimers. Um, there's uh, ferritin, uh, lymphopenia. Um, but when we compared all of these in the uh, Tobias Herald paper in Jackie, as I said, IL-6 had the highest value for the uh, area under the curve from the, from the uh, receiver operating curve in terms of um, um, combined sensitivity and specificity for predicting worse outcomes. And in fact, an Italian group took that a step further uh, and what they did was um, they looked at uh, patients, sick patients admitted with severe COVID hypoxic pneumonia and found that when they um, combined a composite score with IL-6 CRP and the ratio of oxygen saturation to the FiO2, in other words, the inspired uh, concentration of oxygen, they found that those three in a composite score gave you the highest predictor. And I'm sure that if you actually ended up putting in D-dimers as well, um, you'd probably find that the AUC would start creeping up and up and up. So, mm. you know, I, I, I would imagine I would imagine by now, or I hope by now, that, you know, you'd have a, an app on your phone with a very simple algorithm where you'd put in the, SO, you know, the SAO2, maybe the SAO2 to FiO2 ratio, what's called the SF ratio. Um, you'd put in your either your CRP or your IL-6, whichever you've got. You might also, I suspect, put in your, put in your D-dimers, maybe a lymphocyte count, and it would say, you know, on admission, your patient has got a, you know, 80 or 90% likelihood of needing ventilation. And in that patient, you think, right, well, I'm not going to mess around. I'm going to crack on and escalate their, uh, their anti-COVID therapy. Hmm. Oh, it's so fascinating. And in your experience and understanding with the, the IL-6 level, is that something most you know uh, hospital laboratories can easily run, or does it need to be more of a send-out lab that takes some time to turn around? No, that's, um, that's I think Roche make a commercial, commercial assay for it. But having said that, you know, here in Tayside, we don't run the IL-6 assay. Um, we run CRP, which tracks, mm-hmm. it tracks very closely to IL-6, actually. So you could argue that... Um, uh, that you probably don't need IL-6. Every lab measures CRP. Um, mm-hmm. So if you're using CRP, as I said, a cutoff of more than 35 on admission or during the course of illness, if it goes up to more than 95, that's, uh, that's, um, a, you know, that's bad news. Okay. Oh, that's so helpful. Um, now let's go back to this this ACE2 receptor that you mentioned mm-hmm. before. Uh, you know, we have listeners from various backgrounds uh, from across the world. Can you just give us some some basic information in regards to what what that receptor does, and just restate why it's important with uh, SARS-CoV-2? Okay. So let's go back to the beginning, Dave. So angiotensin two is actually a counter-regulatory enzyme that modifies the effect of the Um, renin um, angiotensin system. So what I mean by that is it modulates the effect of um, angiotensin 2 because it breaks down 
um, angiotensin 2 into its substrates, which are angiotensin 1 to 7 and angiotensin 1 to 9. And they actually have the opposite effects of angiotensin 2. So, for example, while angiotensin 2 is a very potent pulmonary and systemic vasoconstrictor, angiotensin 1 to 7 does the opposite. It's a vasodilator. So if you like, it's the sort of, it's the natural physiological break to the um, renin-angiotensin system. So um, the way that coronaviruses um, hitch a ride into the respiratory lining epithelium um, is that they hitch onto the angiotensin 2 receptor um, through the spike protein. Now, there's another side to this story. It's not just H2. There's another receptor, uh, which is called TMPRSS2. Um, and that stands for transmembrane protease serine um, 2 receptor, um, which is a protease. And what that TMPRSS2, which is less of a mouthful, what TMPRSS2 does is that it actually um, it actually uh, primes the uh, spike protein so that it can latch on to the ACE2 receptor. So you've really got to think of ACE2 and TMPRSS2 in concert. You can't really think of one without the other, to my thinking, because it gets in the cell by priming the spike protein with the TMPRSS2 and then latches on. And then once it latches on to the ACE2, that gets endocytosed into the respiratory epithelium and then you're into the cell and then you start to get the, you start to get the adverse effects um, of the virus. So the theory, and this is still just a theory because I don't think it's been categorically proven. The theory is, is that if your ACE2 levels are lower, that that might conceivably lead to a lower propensity for COVID nineteen because you've got less receptors for the for the COVID for the COVID virus to hitch a ride onto, and the same would apply to TMPRSS two. That the lower the expression of H two receptors and TMPRSS two receptors, that that would uh, you would expect to lead to an attenuation in terms of the viral load. It won't prevent you getting the virus, but your degree of viral load would be less now. That's not actually been proven yet, but it does seem to be it does seem to be a cogent hypothesis. Mm -hmm. yeah, and you mentioned before about how age uh, can impact the expression of the ACE2 receptor. But what do we know about medical conditions or even medications that result in higher or lower levels of that receptor? And uh, does that impact the likelihood of having more severe illness from COVID-19? Okay, so age, we know definitely gives you increased expression of ACE2. Smoking, that's a big mm. one. Mm. That's been shown in small airways and, uh, and in the nose that smoking increases ACE2 receptor expression. Um, diabetes increases um, ACE2 uh, receptor um, expression as well. Um, there are drugs which can increase ACE2 receptor expression, particularly the angiotensin receptor blockers, um, so they can increase it. However, like most things, Dave, it's not that simple <laughs> uh, because if you reduce ACE2 receptor expression, you then remove that uh, counter-regulatory effect on the renin-angiotensin pathway, if you remember. 
So mm-hmm. what will happen is, is if you take ACE2 out by down-regulating it, you'll have unopposed levels of angiotensin 2. And angiotensin 2 is actually not good for you, as well as causing vasoconstriction, vascular permeability, permeability. It also has adverse effects on myocardial remodeling and fibrosis and also causes acute lung injury. But anyway, there has been a lot of hoo-ha. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether that's a Scottish term or not, whether you use that in America. But there I has think- been a lot of hoo-ha about um, angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, ACE inhibitors, and angiotensin receptor blockers, ARBs. And, I, you know, when, when, when the whole hoo-ha came out in March, people said, oh, you know, stop your ACE inhibitors and your ARBs because it upregulates ACE2 and it'll mean you'll have a higher viral load. The studies that have been done, and these are mostly um, health informatics studies. So now there's been a meta-analysis that was published recently and a big observational study from Denmark that was published in JAMA. And the verdict now is very clear, is that um, ACE inhibitors and ARBs definitely do not increase your susceptibility to getting COVID-19, and they don't predispose to worse outcomes. So the message is clear. If you're on an ACE or you're on an ARB for hypertension, diabetes, or heart failure, um, keep calm and carry on. <laughs> oh wow, that's there's so much to unpack there. But um, what now? What about any uh, conditions or medications that may lower the levels and actually decrease susceptibility? Uh, you know, things such as uh, allergic rhinitis or uh, asthma or inhaled corticosteroids. Great question, Dave. So, where are we thus far with the data? There's a, there's a lot of data to to unpack here. Um, the first thing that we know. Um, is that um, asthma per se doesn't have any impact on ACE2 expression. That's the first thing. And these are studies that have been done looking at retrospective cohorts from patients who've either had a a bronchial brushing from endoscopy or who've had a nasal brushing. So, you know, these are things like severe asthma uh, cohorts where this has been done. The second thing that we do know is that your degree of IgE, immunoglobulin E sensitization, um, has an inverse correlation with your H2 exp- H- ACE2 expression. There was a paper by Jackson in Jackie this year which showed that very elegantly, showing that the higher the level of your IgE sensitization, these were asthma patients, that you get a proportional reduction in um, ACE2 expression. The other thing that was shown is that if you actually have an allergen challenge, so you know, if you go into um, an allergen changer or if you at chamber or if you actually have a, um, a segmental allergen bronchial challenge, that also leads to um, reduced ACE expression. The other thing that's known is that type 2 inflammation, which obviously atopy and eosinophilia are integral parts of, also affect the way these two Um, cell entry receptors are regulated. So what I mean by that is that if you have type 2 high inflammation, so in other words, if you're atopic or you've got eosinophilia, that that down-regulates ACE2, but interestingly, it paradoxically up-regulates TMPR-SS2. So you've Hmm. got a kind of a a push-pull system here with ACE2 being down-regulated and TMPR-SS2 being up-regulated in association with type 2 inflammation. And the mechanism for that has now been elucidated. 
And that was shown very um, elegantly, again, in another paper in Jackie, where they found ex vivo that if you stimulate with interleukin-13, which is one of the key type 2 inflammatory cytokines, that that has exactly the same effect. In other words, IL-13 stimulation downregulates ACE2 expression, but upregulates TMPR SS2 expression. So the net effect actually might be null because you're getting this because you're getting this push pull effect. To answer your other question, um, you asked, are there any treatments which will alter expression? Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes. And there was a very elegant paper in the Blue Journal uh, by Peters, um, which is actually an index paper, which showed that patients taking inhaled corticosteroids have down-regulated expression of both um, ACE2 and also of um, TMPR SS2. And they showed a nice dose-response effect comparing low to medium dose and high dose. But interestingly, in the same study as a negative control, they found that inhaled steroid had a null effect on ICAM-1 expression. And ICAM-1 is responsible um, for uh, rhinovirus infection, mm-hmm. whereas ACE2 and TMPR SS2 are involved for um, SARS-CoV-2 entry. So I think that was a really elegant study showing that corticosteroids um, can uh, downregulate COVID-related genes. These were these were shown in uh, induced sputum of asthma patients, so over about three hundred patients from memory. That it's so fascinating. So uh, to summarize, if I may, uh, uh, from what I'm, I'm hearing, for our, our patients, the millions of patients across the world that suffer from common allergic conditions, allergic rhinitis and asthma, um, it doesn't sound like we have great news. It doesn't sound like we have terrible news. It sounds like, as you mentioned, if I may, keep calm and carry on, keep taking your medications, <laughs> keep your conditions under control. Does that sound about right? Yeah, in fact, that was the exact title of a, of a leader I wrote in Annals of Allergy. It was Inhaled Steroids for COVID and Asthma, colon, Keep Calm, Carry On. That, <laughs> right, so um, we, there is actually health informatics data, which I think is worth briefly discussing. So um, I don't want to plug the uh, UK NHS too much, but, but I am very proud of it. So if we go back, um, to the uh, to the open safely uh, cohort, what they did is they looked at um, over eight hundred thousand asthma patients. So you know this has got a lot of power, which is why I want to talk about it briefly. And these patients, um, three quarters of them uh, were taking low to medium dose ICS inhaled steroid. Um, about fifteen percent were taking a high dose, and the rest, about ten percent, were just taking. Um, albuterol alone. And what they did is that they looked at the adjusted um, uh, hazard ratio for ICS use compared to albuterol alone. So with inhaled steroid, without inhaled steroid, in these asthma patients, in terms of the propensity for um, hospital-related COVID deaths. And what they found was this, is that if you're on a low to medium dose of inhaled steroid, uh, the hazard ratio showed that you have a 10% increased likelihood of dying from COVID-19, but the confidence interval included unity, so it wasn't significant. 
if you are taking a high dose inhaled steroid, um, then the hazard ratio jumped up um, and it was 1.52. In other words, a, in other words, a 52% increased likelihood of having COVID related death. And in that case, the confidence interval did exclude unity. So it was significant. So does that mean that taking um, a higher dose of inhaled steroid predisposes you to dying from COVID? No, it doesn't. It's simply a marker of confounding by severity. In other words, if you've got more severe asthma, because you're just using inhale, inhaled steroid dose as a proxy for asthma severity, mm-hmm. you're more likely to, uh, to die from COVID disease. And they actually showed in another paper, the same Open Safely cohort, that the risk of dying from COVID in patients with or without in oral steroid therapy, again, as another proxy for, for asthma severity, was approximately doubled. And I think that's the most robust data, just because of the power of numbers, to tell you what the potential effect is. But my message to my patients, and they ask me this, every single virtual consultation mm-hmm. I've been doing over the past few months since lockdown, my patients always say, you know, doctor, I've been reading about, you know, steroids and, you know, they might predispose you to worse outcomes, the immunosuppress you, blah, blah, blah. What should I do? And I say the best thing that you can do to protect yourself from any virus, whether that be, you know, COVID or the common, the common coronavirus or rhinovirus or RSV or adenovirus, any virus is to keep your asthma as well controlled as possible. And the best way you can do that is to adhere religiously to your inhaled steroid and your other controller therapy. And that would be my take-home message. That's my mantra to the patients. Uh, And to build upon that, you know, I'm sure you get this question a ton as well. And I know you know, this is a common concern. Uh, you know, asthma is this heterogeneous condition, as you know, and it affects millions of people, but it really encompasses very different endotypes, phenotypes, uh, levels of severity, levels of control. Um, we're seeing conflicting messaging from our, you know, the World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control, local governments in regards to asthma being a risk factor for um, susceptibility to getting COVID-19 or having severe illness from it. What do, what do we know actually from the evidence? I'm sure people are looking at this because, you know, from the the person with asthma, their standpoint, they've been told, you know, their whole lives that respiratory illnesses increase risk for exacerbation. Are we seeing the same effect from COVID-19? We are and we're not. Okay. Um, it is it is an increased risk. And if you look at the Open Safely cohort, um, just because it's the largest cohort, about 14% of patients admitted to hospital with covid um, had asthma. So it is, you know, in that regard, it's a, it's a risk factor. Any respiratory disease is. Uh, but COPD more than asthma in that regard. That's because you've, you know, you've got impaired host defense and an altered microbiome in COPD, and you're a smoker, so you've got a triple whammy in COPD. Mm. Um, there's actually a really, really nice table um, that was just published the other day by Guy Broussel in the, in the Blue Journal. And we had, we, which I actually blogged yesterday on my LinkedIn blog, um, which uh, really crystallized the question you're asking very nicely. And what, they show, what he showed, and this is evidence-based, was that the increased risk of COVID-19 if you've got asthma, in other words, looking at the heterogeneity of asthma and the potential risk of 
severe COVID, which is, I think, is what you're asking me, mm-hmm. is that um, there's an increased risk in um, older people in type 2 low asthma, um, in um, asthma patients who've got high levels of IL-6, in asthma patients who smoke, in asthma patients who are di- obese, diabetes, hypertension, other comorbidities. If you've got severe asthma, so if you're on oral or high-dose inhaled steroid um, or oral steroid, in other words, genus step five, then you're more at risk. If your lung function's impaired, presumably because you know, you've got less reserve. If your asthma's badly controlled and you're a frequent exacerbator, um, that's also a risk. Um, and if you are, have a need for more in the way of oral steroid bursts, and that's just a marker that your asthma is badly controlled. So it brings me back to what I said before. The best thing that you can do as a clinician for your patients is to make sure that they religiously adhere to their controller therapy. And here's the thing, right? It's not just their inhaled steroid. Long-acting beta agonists and long-acting muscarinic antagonists have been shown in at least two studies, albeit in vitro that I've seen, um, to suppress the uh, cytokines and in particular interleukin-6. Mm. So I think that it's not just the inhaled steroids, it's the long-acting beta agonists and the muscarinic antagonists uh, taken together, which will give you the lowest risk. So we need more health informatics work. That's something that Uh, I'm trying to dig into at the moment with national and regional databases to try and tease that out at the moment. The problem is, essentially, with any of these health informatics studies, is that you have this uh, confounding by severity. You know, the more treatment you're on, the more severe your asthma. Mm. Oh, that! Thank you for that summary. I think that's very helpful information for for everybody listening, especially our patients as well. Um, You know, I want to respect your time, but I have just a couple more questions, and I'd be remiss. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, you know, the big million dollar question. I really would love your insight on this, given your expertise. You know, while the, while the world awaits a potential vaccine or vaccine candidates, plural, uh-huh. for COVID-19, uh, many different treatment approaches are being investigated. You know, we've all seen the headlines and we're aware of the publications and everything that goes into that. But um, can you summarize what we've learned from these trials and offer your thoughts on what may be the best approach for treatment? Okay. Well... Um, we don't have anything at the moment that will prevent COVID-19, as you know. Mind you, you know, there was some very promising data published in The Lancet showing that um, adenovirus vectored vaccines produce immunogenicity in terms of um, um, an antibody and a T-cell response, which was published on Monday. So that's reassuring. But, you know, we're probably quite a few months off in terms of of getting the phase three data from, from vaccines. So let's park that. So we're really talking about secondary prevention for people who've already got the COVID virus and uh, who are sick and been admitted to hospital. What do we know so far? Well, the only drug thus far that impacts on COVID-induced mortality, so this is severe COVID disease for patients admitted to hospital, are the systemic corticosteroids. So that's dexamethasone. So that was a six milligram dose of dexamethasone. If you want to convert that to prednisone equivalent, that's 40 milligrams a day. So it's sort of medium dose prednisone therapy, if you like. And that was the UK recovery trial um, in uh, 2014 patients 
treated with DEXA and 4,321 um, who were uh, controls who just had usual care. And the bottom line for that was in terms of number needed to treat, which is what I understand and what I would tell my patients, is that if you're on a mechanical ventilator um, and you're treated with dexamethasone, you have to treat eight patients to prevent a death in one. That's the bottom line. That's the number needed to treat. If you are on oxygen on admission at baseline, um, then you had to treat 35 patients with dexamethasone to prevent one death. So the more severe the disease, it seems the better the, the better the bang for buck is with dexamethasone. But thus far, in terms of peer-reviewed published data, that's the only drug which will have any impact on death. In terms of shortening the duration of illness, as I'm sure most of the listeners know, um, the Gilead drug, um, remdesivir, uh, the antiviral drug um, shortens the duration of the uh, disease uh, by about four days. I believe it's not peer-reviewed yet, but I believe there is some data out there. I haven't seen it peer-reviewed yet. Um, that shows that it might also impact on mortality as well. But I think what I've learned, and I've been blogging this on LinkedIn now for several months, I think the thing that I've learned is that in terms of getting the confidence from any of these trials, it's a numbers game. In other words, you really need trials in thousands of patients to get a confident result. So that's why I'm confident in the result from the recovery trial, because it was in, you know, over 4,000 patients. So what worries me is the trials where you're looking at, you know, three, four, five hundred patients where you see a bit of a signal, um, that kind of worries me. So I think we really do need to wait and see what the big national and multinational trials, like, you know, the WHA solid solidarity trials. So what do we know now? We know that dexamethasone impacts mortality. We know that hydroxychloroquine, um, no matter what your president thinks, has no impact on mortality. We knew that from recovery, okay? Um, we also know that the combination of ritonavir and lapinavir, caletra, has no impact on mortality. And what we're waiting to find out from recovery and from uh, the WHO trial, solidarity trial, is we're waiting to hear from azithromycin. I'll fall off my chair if azithromycin has any impact yeah. on, on mortality. I don't think, I don't think it will do. I'm, I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm I'm going out with this now. I don't think it will. So where we are at the moment, we've got remdesivir and we've got um, dexamethasone. What we don't have, and this is a big regret, and I was banging on the door of the National Institutes of Health Research early on in March, and I just got ignored, <laughs> is that what I wanted to see in these large trials was to look at combination therapy. Because the way I look at this disease is you've got an upstream effect which is where the, you, know, you can actually interrupt the virus with an antiviral, or you can interrupt the way the virus enters the cell. And then you've got a downstream effect in susceptible individuals who get the hyperinflammatory coagulopathy response. So I think in the sick patients, it's intellectually naive to think that one monotherapy is going to be the answer. You need two. And right at the start, I said to NIHR, you know, why are you not including in recovery a combination limb looking at an upstream modality like an antiviral 
and downstream modality like a corticosteroid or a selective cytokine antagonist like anti-AL6. Um, and I think that's been an opportunity missed um, because that's the way it's going to go. In the same way, you know, we've already learned that from, from HIV disease. You know, one drug is not the answer. And it's going to be the same with COVID-19. It's going to be dual or triple or quadruple therapy um, you know, so it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of gain of incremental gains, of marginal gains, that you're going to see a small effect with one, bigger effect with two, and three, and maybe four drugs. And that's my big regret, is that the big national and multinational trials haven't looked at this in a systematic manner. It's been a bit of a scattergun approach, to be honest with you. Oh, well, it, your insight is just spectacular, and thank you for sharing um, the the great summary of of where we stand in regards to you know therapeutic trials and whatnot. But to build upon what you just mentioned, in your opinion, what are some other aspects of COVID nineteen that aren't receiving enough attention and warrant additional research? I think it's the it's the effects on cognitive function, mm-hmm. um, on uh, systemic constitutional upset. Um, you know, patients afterwards, a lot of them still feel they have cognitive defects, they can't concentrate, they're confused, they're anxious. And I'm not just talking about the patients who've had to spend, you know, a substantive period in ITU, which is stressful enough. Um, I'm, you know, I'm talking about the sort of post-viral fatigue syndrome. So, you know, this is going to be a, a huge burden um, on the health service, Um in terms of dealing with the fallout of COVID. And of course, we've got the effects on the lungs. You're gonna have an interstitial lung disease or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis where patients are gonna be left with a, uh, um, with a diffusional um, defect, a restrictive defect of lung function after COVID. So um, there are studies, um, there's, a, there's a big NIHR study uh, uh, up and running in the UK to look at this in terms of following patients who've got COVID. But I think that's um, I think that's going to be the elephant in the room is for the people who've who've been lucky enough to recover and trying to deal with the sort of multifaceted problems which they have. Mm, no, right. I mean, this is still so new uh, and we have yet to even dive into long term ramifications from those who have various uh, degrees of severity from illness. So I agree that's going to require a lot of attention uh, moving forward. Well, uh, you know, unfortunately, as you mentioned, it, it doesn't appear that this pandemic is going away anytime soon. Uh, in regards to your own personal plans, do you plan to continue to focus your research in this area? And if so, what comes next? Well, I've ex- out of expediency, I think I have to because my severe asthma patients are still shielding. Um, and the message we're sending out to them is don't come into hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, we're sending out the message that, you know, we're not doing lung function tests and we're not seeing them face to face. So um, that's put a bit of a kibosh on my on my um, upper and lower airway research. So out of expediency, yeah, I think that's really where we've got to go. And we've been told by the government that, you know, we have to concentrate on the uh, um, on the sort of emergency health priorities for the moment. Um, so what am I doing? Well, I'm trying to get some research funding from the uh, NIHR uh, in combination with a, um, a valued colleague of mine in Liverpool called Graham Devereaux. We're both, uh, he's from the, Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. He's actually a pulmonologist I've known for many years. And we've put in an application to the NIHR to look at inhaled and intranasal steroid therapy 
as primary prophylaxis for uh, patients um, to see if it modifies the glide path of COVID-19. It's not going to prevent it, but will it prevent admission and adverse outcomes? Hmm. And I stress intranasal. I've got a bee in my bonnet about this uh, <laughs> because the nose is the first port of call. And I think, you know, to give an inhaled steroid on its own, if we think that's got putative protective effects by down-regulating COVID gene expression, ACE2 and T- TMPRSS2, I think you need to be treating the whole airway, the whole, the whole airway if you're going to prevent COVID outcomes. So we're trying to get that study up and running in Africa, in Kenya, where the R rate is climbing on a daily basis. And the reason for that is the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine's got people on the ground already in Kenya. They're already collaborating in asthma research. So we thought it'd be rude to try and not get some COVID research in one of the, um, you know, one of the townships there where there's very little resource. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that, God forbid, there is a second wave here. I hope the second study never comes to fruition. I think I've never said that about any of my <laughs> research before, but I hope it never happens. I'll be delighted. I'll have a holiday in my heart if it doesn't. Um, is for the putative second wave um, uh, in, you know, in in the fall, Q4. um, Half the deaths in Scotland and pretty much the same in England were actually due to elderly, frail people with comorbidities in care homes uh, because it just spreads around the care homes like wildfire. So what we're doing, we're doing a very similar study with... um, inhaled and intranasal corticosteroid with a particular corticosteroid called cetlesonide, which at least in vitro has been shown to suppress replication of um, SARS-CoV-2. And that effect has been shown with cetlesonide and bemetazone, actually, but not with betlamethasone, budesonide or fluticasone. So um, we've been working that up. We've got a company that's promised to produce us some intranasal and inhaled cyclesonide actives and placebos, and we're going to put in a grant to do that study, God forbid if it ever happens, um, in care homes in the fall. So that's really where we're putting our efforts, as well as doing um, this collaborative um, health informatics uh, work uh, that we're doing in collaboration with some of my colleagues at St Andrews University, um, Imperial University, Edinburgh, um, and also with some of my colleagues in Manchester to try and tease out the health informatics, looking at patients um, with um, allergic disease, asthma, and COPD to see um, um, what can modify COVID outcomes. Wow, that you know, you know, Brian, your your curiosity, your passion, your dedication to truly just trying to help people is so apparent and just truly appreciated by really all of us. And I, I can't thank you enough for your your devotion to this area. And I agree. I hope you never get to launch that that last study you discussed. Yeah. Um, but if it's necessary, uh, you know, we, we can't wait to see what you find. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this has been fantastic. And it's for me personally, it's been extremely informative and quite frankly, very sobering. Uh, this is a these are very scary times. Uh, but as we wrap up, I, I do want to try to end on a high note, if I may. Uh, so here is my my question to you, uh, Dr. Lipworth, as we as we say goodbye here. Whenever this pandemic has either ended or lessened enough to allow for some semblance of normalcy, where do you hope to travel first, and why? Well, um, 
I hope to travel to um, a place called Macrahanish, which is uh, the most westerly point of Scotland. Um, yeah. I actually hope to travel there on Saturday because I've not had a holiday for six months. So my wife is going to drag me there. And I promise not to do too much work in Macrahanish. Um, and I hope to go to Macrahanish, which has a, it's actually a pilgrimage place for, uh, for Americans because it's got one of the finest golf courses um, in the world where you actually drive your golf ball off the first tee over the Atlantic Ocean, which is about a 200-yard carry. Uh-huh. Um, and um, so it's quite an unusual place. It's got a championship golf course, um, beautiful sandy beaches, very quiet, hopefully uh, hopefully no COVID. So I'm going there on Saturday, mm-hmm. but where would I hope to travel if I got on an aeroplane? Um, I'd probably hope to go back to Oman. Um, uh, just because we've got happy memories of going there before. It's very peaceful. Um, people there are very friendly. And crucially, because we get cold, wet weather in Scotland, it's usually nice and warm even in the winter. So if we can jump on an aeroplane, perhaps in quarter one, 2021, and travel safely, that's probably where I'm going to head back to get a bit of sunshine. Because I, wow. I won't get it in Macrahanish, that's for sure. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that. I, I hope you have a wonderful um, trip this weekend, and I hope you get to make your your next trip as well. And at some point in the hopefully near future, I look forward to seeing you in person and sharing either an elbow bump or an ankle five or an air high five or whatever we'll be doing at that time. But <laughs> you know, maybe, so, maybe even a glass of malt whiskey. Uh, yes, that would be wonderful. I, I truly look forward to that. Well, you know, Dr. Lipworth, I, I can't thank you enough for contributing your time and expertise to our show. And before we let you go, um, do you have any last words for our listeners? No, just everybody, you know, stay safe, stay healthy. If you're taking inhaled and intranasal steroids, keep calm and carry on. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.